Well, good morning and welcome back to our weekly Bible Talks. I know that we haven't had one of these for quite some time, uh, and it's quite possible that I look a little bit different from last time you saw me. Um, just to fill you in, uh, I just returned last week from serving for seven weeks with the U.S. Navy Reserve. I am a U.S. Navy chaplain, uh, which I uh, love doing, uh, kind of in my spare time, sort of like a little hobby, uh, opportunity to get more evangelistic opportunities and that sort of thing. Uh, but for the first two years as a Navy chaplain, you have to go away for the summer for training. So last summer I went to six weeks of sort of like minimized boot camp, uh, a bridge boot camp for officers, and that was positively miserable. But this uh, year I went to seven weeks of chaplain training, and it turned out to be just a real delight. I was just telling my assistant here that um, it was, in a way, kind of like a vacation. I mean, there were still classes and tests, and I had to write papers and that sort of thing, but it was extremely enjoyable, very, very edifying, had lots of free time on the weekends, had a car, a rental car they gave me that, so I could go wherever I wanted to. Um, so it, it was a lot of fun, but I just got back from that, and I'm still sort of catching up from that experience and trying to get my bearings and whatnot. Uh, and if you pray for me, I'd encourage you to pray for me. The transition has been, uh, you know, from this Navy training back to normal life has been a little bit more jarring than I expected. Uh, you know, you hear about people coming back from deployment and, and, deployment and it being difficult, um, but, uh, you know, I didn't think this was going to be the same. I was only gone for six weeks, but it is still uh, kind of a big change. You know, my family's been sort of living a certain way without me for the last seven weeks, and they kind of came to enjoy that, and now here I am, uh, you know, back in action and that sort of thing. So if you pray for me, pray that the transition and reintegration back into family life and church life would go smoothly. Um, I'd appreciate that. You can probably tell that I got a mustache. Um, they, they actually issue these in the military. So when you join the military, whether you want a mustache or not, they slap one right on you. It's, it, it's sticky. I could, I could peel it off if I wanted to. But uh, since I kind of look like Tom Selleck uh, with a mustache, I'm not, I'm not going to peel it off for you. But anyway, uh, all joking aside, we're here back to the book of Exodus, and we're going to be looking today at the uh, third and fourth plagues, the plague of gnats and the plague of flies, just to remind you of what been. And especially if this is your first time joining with us, you know, from time to time I, I catch on that people join us uh, sort of midway through books. And if this is your first uh, time with us, we're delighted you've uh, joined us. Maybe consider uh, tuning in every single week. But we're walking our way through the book of Exodus. Exodus takes place roughly 1400 years BC. Uh, at the beginning of the book, the people of Israel are slaves in Egypt to Pharaoh. Pharaoh is a wicked, cruel taskmaster. He's oppressing them. He's having them murder the baby boys. Uh, some they're throwing into the Nile. The other ones, he instructs the uh, midwives to murder the babies. But nonetheless, the people of Israel continue to proliferate. They're fruitful. They multiply. They're growing in the land. Um, and they're also crying out to the Lord for deliverance. And the Lord hears their cries, and he raises up for them a deliverer in the person of Moses. And as we've seen, originally Moses didn't really want to be the deliverer. He was happy shepherding the sheep out in Midian, but the Lord called him to this. And that's a reminder that sometimes what the Lord calls us to do, we're not initially excited about. We, we might not even want to do it at the beginning. Um, and yet eventually, uh, God will have his way. And it's uh, wiser to just surrender to the Lord as soon as possible, even if it's something that you don't particularly want to do at times. Well, Moses surrenders to the Lord. He goes to Egypt. He says, let my people go. And at the beginning, Pharaoh's like, I don't know the Lord. I'm not letting the people go. Bada bing, bada boom, have the people make bricks without straw. And so Moses thinks he's just made things worse. But that's when the Lord says, you stand back and let me display my power. Just watch, and I'm going to 
humble Pharaoh so that he eventually drives the people of Israel out of Egypt. And that's what's taking place now. We're going through these different plagues. If I remember correctly, there are ten of them, and their efforts at humbling Pharaoh, showing Pharaoh how weak and powerless he is in comparison to the Lord, so that eventually he will let the people go. The plagues that we've covered so far, again, if I remember correctly, it's been a few weeks since we've talked about this, turning, turning the Nile into blood. Uh, you'll remember they worship the Nile as a god. So what is it? As if they've turned the Nile into blood, it's as if their god has been killed. The second one was the plague of frogs. And you, like I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, actually, what, eight, eight nine weeks ago, uh, each of these plagues is directed toward different gods. They worship the Nile as a god. They worshiped another god with, the frog, with a frog head. Uh, so again, what, do you, what happens when you're land is inundated with frogs, and then all of a sudden the Lord strikes all those frogs dead. Uh, it's showing them that their gods are dead. And the same could be said about each of the plagues. I'm not going to make that point every single time, because I don't want to be redundant, but trace them through. We'll talk about it more when we get to the final plague, which, if you know anything about the final plague, that too is an attack on the gods of Egypt. But when we get there, we'll talk about that more. Um, but today we're going to be talking about the plague of gnats and flies, which if you've ever been around bugs, uh, you know, swarming bugs that bite you and whatnot, uh, not a whole lot of fun. Um, but again, see these as acts of God's judgment designed to humble Pharaoh so that he will let the people of Israel go and head on their way toward the promised land. Let me pray and then we'll dive into our passage. Pray with me. Oh Lord God, thank you for the privilege of studying your word. Your word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. It's through your word that you make us wise unto salvation. Please have mercy on us now. Open our eyes, open our hearts. Enable us to behold wondrous things out of your law. Lord, help me to make comments that really bring out the true meaning and the intent of this passage. Help us to feel in our own lives and souls the implications, the applications of this And as always, give us faith that we might be doers of your word, not hearers only. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Now I'm going to read verses 16 through 32. It's kind of a long section, but I want to just these two plagues together, the plague of gnats and the plague of flies. You can probably guess why I want to talk about them together. But follow along, Exodus chapter 8, verses 16 through 32. This is God's word. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So, they, so there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies, and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then, Moses, or pardon me, then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. 
But Moses said, it would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go a three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God, as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you and will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses said and, re- and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Now, there's actually an awful lot we could say about this passage, more than I think we have time to uh, say. I, I feel like I say that pretty much every single Bible study. And, and that there is a sense in which that's true. The Bible is of such immense depth and richness and profundity that you could discuss it uh, endlessly. I mean, you could probably take a chapter and discuss that for the rest of your life and never get to the bottom of its implications, applications, worldview. Uh, but anyway, let's see what we can get here from these two plagues. Now, Gnats and flies, they're not a lot of fun. Have you ever been you know, camping in the deep dark woods and the gnats are just driving you bonkers? They do have the ability to virtually drive you insane. I remember I used to do an awful lot of camping when I was a young person back in uh, high school and college and whatnot. We'd go backpacking, canoeing, uh, a lot of fun. Uh, but what we hated more than anything is camping about uh, the middle of June because that's when the mosquitoes, the gnats, they were just uh, intolerable. Uh, you know, getting bit all day long. All, they even get worse at night. Uh, the, the biting gnats are awful. And what you see in this passage is the way in which God does allow things to get very, very miserable and very, very painful in order to accomplish his purposes. You know, imagine being just tormented by thousands of gnats, you know, getting in your ears, getting in your nostrils, uh, tormenting you at night. And and while we think they probably had some sort of primitive bug repellent, uh, you know, things like smoke and bear grease will drive bugs away. Uh, They're nothing like the the DEET that we have today. So, you know, at night they're just getting tormented by flies, tormented by gnats, uh, positively miserable. But again, see this as the judgment of God. This is not just some sort of freak natural disaster that all of these bugs swarmed into Egypt. God is using these to humble Pharaoh, to humble his people so that they let the people of Israel leave. I think this is a hard lesson for us to realize. We love to imagine God blessing us with good things. We love to imagine God giving us sunshine and cool breezes and ice cream and apple pie. And certainly God is the giver of every good gift. But at the same time, God also judges. God chastens his children. And sometimes he'll use very, very painful means to do that. But the reason why he does that is because he loves us. He loves us too much to let us destroy our lives in sin. And he'll bring into our lives a death, a suffering, a trial, a cancer, uh, the loss of job, the loss of a child. He'll bring these very painful means into our lives if he needs to, to teach us to hate sin and to trust in him. I really believe that we've been sort of influenced by the prosperity gospel more than we realize. Uh, You know, most of us, if you're listening to this Bible talk, are probably not reading Joel Osteen books. You're probably not listening to T.D. Jakes at night. I I certainly hope you're not. Uh, You know, so we don't think God is going to bless us with a Rolls Royce and a mansion, and if we just have enough faith, uh, you know, we can claim a billion dollars. Most of us probably think that that is just nonsense and shenanigans, and it is. 
And yet, I think we've been unintentionally influenced by the prosperity gospel in that it's led us to think that God only gives blessings. God only gives comfortable uh, butterflies and rainbows and those sorts of things. Now again, I don't want to diminish at all that God does give all sorts of good gifts. I mean, the smile of a baby, a good gift from God. A, a healthy marriage, a good gift from God. Fun playing outdoors, a good gift from God. All of these things are blessings, and we praise God for them. But at the same time, God judges. God does bring curses into people's lives. And again, if he needs to, he will positively make your life miserable in this life to wake you up to seek him. Also, the sufferings God allows to come into our life, they're sort of a reminder of what we deserve. I remember very distinctly, several years ago, I had a good friend who had rotator cuff uh, shoulder surgery, and he said the recovery from that was absolutely uh, incredibly painful. Uh, he was locked in this sort of sling thing all the time, he, you know, he was immobilized. Uh, and this guy's younger than me, he was, you know, let's say 35 at the time. And I remember him distinctly saying to me, if this is the kind of suffering that God allows in this life, hell must be positive positively horrendous. It must be unspeakably bad. Um, that's what he was saying just uh, as a result of his rotator cuff uh, surgery recovery. And that is another reason why God allows such painful suffering to come into our lives in this life. Uh, not only to wake us up, not only to chasten us, not only to humble us, but also to sort of give us a taste of what we deserve. We deserve far, far worse than uh, painful rotator cuff recovery surgery. Uh, we deserve far, far worse than gnats tormenting us, flies tormenting us. We deserve the eternal lake of fire forever. Be reminded of that when the Lord allows very painful suffering to come into your life. And yet, at the same time, thank God that Jesus endured that wrath for us on the cross. Uh, you, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, if your hope is in him, you'll never experience the wrath of God in hell because Jesus took that for you on the cross. Praise God for that. And therefore, the small sufferings of this life, uh, you know, the the, the gnats, the flies, the uh, recovery from soldier, shoulder surgery, uh, those are the closest to hell that we'll ever get. Thank God for that. And what's more, like Romans 8 says, the sufferings of this present life aren't worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. So as bad as God lets things get in this life, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you'll never experience the wrath of God in hell. And what's more, the joy, the glory that you'll experience in heaven will so overcompensate for whatever you have to experience in this life that in heaven you won't even bother comparing it. You'll think, ah, that was, that was nothing, those gnats and flies. Oh, obviously in this life you're not, we, we don't talk that way. Uh, in this life gnats and flies are pretty miserable. Now let me say a few quick particular comments on what we read here. First, it seems as if God does a miracle and turns dust into gnats. If you look at verse 16, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it might become gnats in all the land of Egypt. Now at first you read that and you think, okay, maybe the gnats were like hiding under the dust and by striking the dust he just sort of wakes them up and they come up. That's, that, that's not what it's saying. There does seem to be a true miracle that takes place here where dust turns into gnats. The reason for that is because he says it again even more clearly in verse 17. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. Uh, so imagine just a room filled with dust. You know, you ever have like a, a basement that you haven't gone into in like 20 years? Or you, you know what I'm talking about, an attic you haven't been in in 20 years? Just everything is covered with dust. Now imagine every single particle of that dust miraculously turning into gnats. That's the sort of thing that took place here. So just thousands and probably millions of gnats inundating the land of Egypt. Now you'll notice the magicians try to do the same thing, verse 18. 
the magicians. These are the like false uh, black magic magicians of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. You'll remember that in the first couple of plagues, the Egyptian magicians were able to imitate them. They were able to turn a small amount of water into blood. Uh, They were able to produce more frogs. But at this point going forward, the Egyptian magicians just kind of throw up their hands and say, we can't do this anymore. Uh, This is way beyond our tricks and shenanigans. And they even say, I think, yeah, yeah, verse verse 19, the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Uh, We've talked about this before, but the devil does have supernatural powers. He can perform false signs and wonders to lead people astray. Um, And if you read the New Testament especially, there is somebody called the Antichrist coming and he's going to use false signs and wonders to lead people astray. And yet, the devil's power, the powers of darkness, in comparison to the power of Almighty God, are so minimal, so small, so puny. Uh, and again, you see that illustrated here. There's kind of a line that God will let the devil go, but no farther, to prove that he is the Lord God. And, and, and sometimes, even Egyptian magicians, even those practiced in the dark arts, will come to the realization that this is not uh, anything in our power. This is actually the Lord God doing this. What else can we say about this? Uh, The other theme you see here is the way in which Pharaoh, uh, he wants to sort of give in to half-hearted obedience. Uh, Moses says, let the people go. We're going to go out into the wilderness to sacrifice to the Lord. And Pharaoh's like, all right, you can go sacrifice to the Lord, but you got to stay here in Egypt. Uh, And then Moses is like, no, that's not going to work. I I know that you Egyptians hate uh, shepherds and hate hate, hate us killing sheep and whatnot, and if we do that, they're going to stone us. So Pharaoh's like, all right, you can go, but don't go very far. And then even after that, he changes his mind and he won't let him go. Remember that? One of the things that Pharaoh is illustrating here is the way in which half obedience is disobedience. All right, remember that idea. Half obedience is disobedience. For some reason, we humans think that God gives sort of like partial credit when it comes to obeying him. God says, uh, you know, don't murder. And uh, we think we're okay if we just don't go stab somebody in the neck with a knife. Uh, When in reality, what's the underlying motive behind that command? I don't hate my neighbor like Jesus taught us. Uh, We think, you know, as long as I'm not like, uh, you know, committing adultery with my neighbor's wife, I'm okay. When in reality, the heart motive is not to lust after another woman. Uh, And yet again, I think it's you know, we're all by nature Pharisees. We all love to function on the superficial. Uh, we all love to just sort of check off boxes and think we're okay. And because of that, we can think half obedience is okay, that God is kind of halfway pleased. The Bible doesn't teach that. Uh, half obedience is disobedience. It reminds me of the story in, I think it's First Samuel. You can check me on this. But the Lord tells Saul, go slaughter all of the animals, all of the people, all the men, women, and children of Amalek. Uh, But instead, he spares some of the animals. He spares the king. I can't remember his name right now. You can go look it up. I think it's Agag. He doesn't kill all these folks. And Samuel confronts Saul and says, you know, what's going on here? We, we, we told you to kill all these animals, and, and you didn't, and here's the, the king, Agag, you haven't hacked him to pieces, what's going on? And Saul's like, oh, you're right, God told me to do this, but I saved some of these animals to sacrifice. And that's where Saul, or pardon me, Samuel says to Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. God gave you a command, go wipe them all out, you didn't obey. Um, and even even though your intentions were 
apparently pious. I mean, I don't think they actually were. I think Saul was sort of coming up with an excuse. But even though you're claiming your intentions are pious, to obey is better than sacrifice. Full obedience is true obedience, and half obedience is disobedience. This is so important in our lives. It's so important in parenting. Uh, you know, just to give you a couple of illustrations of this, in parenting, your kids are often, you know, uh, sort of like half heartedly obeying, you know, you, you tell them to go clean their room and you go up and there's like, you know, still a thousand pieces of clothing on the floor and everything's turned upside down and the bed's not made. And you're like, I thought I told you to clean your room. And they're like, I did. When in reality, all that they did was, uh, you know, pick up their headphones and, and, and put them back in the box or something like that. Uh, we, we've got to lovingly communicate that half obedience is not obedience. Actually, half obedience is disobedience. And the way in which we're to teach our children to obey is all the way right away with a happy heart. Now, of course, we show forgiveness, we show grace, grace, we understand we're all sinners and we're going to fall short of the glory of God, especially with younger kids. Don't hold them to this level of perfection that they simply cannot reach. But at the same time, you've got to communicate um, that if they could have obeyed fully but didn't obey fully, that's actually a form of disobedience. And it's the same thing in our lives. Uh, you know, let's say you're going to church, but you've got a bad attitude, you don't want to be there, uh, you, 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 know, you, you sit there and you don't sing the songs, you sort of look grumpy, but then you go out feeling all self-confident and assured, thinking you've checked off the box because you went to church. Uh, don't be kidding yourself. If you worship God with your lips but your heart is far from Him, that is not pleasing to God. Now again, I'm quick to remind us that Jesus died for all of our sins and that if our sins are covered by Jesus' blood, we're righteous in His sight. And yet, as those born again by God's Spirit, we want to wage war against our sins. We want to put them to death. And a key here is understanding that, again, God is looking for wholehearted obedience, all the way right away with a happy heart. And don't deceive yourself into thinking that I'm okay just because I'm not doing these egregious bad things. If I've got a sinful, grumpy attitude, if, I'm, if I really don't want to be doing this, um, you've got to work on that. You gotta, there's still areas where you need to repent by the grace of God so that you're obeying all the way right away with a happy heart. Now, I think I've said enough for this morning. How might we pray this back to God? I can think of several ways that we could pray this back to God. First, let's pray that God gives us the faith to believe that He's still good even when He brings painful situations into our lives. He might be tormenting us with gnats, tormenting us with flies, and yet He still is a loving, good God. And what's more, He's allowing these painful circumstances into our lives because He is loving and good. Um, Believing that God still is loving and good under such circumstances requires a lot of faith. So let's pray for that um, because, again, I'm sure you know this, but pain, suffering is one of the greatest temptations to doubt the goodness and the love of God that there is. So let's pray that we walk by faith and not by sight there. Additionally, let's praise God that He has power uh, that is so much greater than the powers of darkness that they, they can't even be compared. Uh, yes, False religions can produce miracles, can produce you know freaky stuff that, that some people find impressive, but in comparison to the real thing, uh, genuine biblical Christianity, they, they don't even hold a candle. So praise God that His powers are so much greater than the powers of darkness. But also let's pray for grace to obey all the way right away with a happy heart. It's easy to point that out in our kids, um, but if you take a careful look at your own life, you're probably just as guilty of it in your own life as your kids are. So pray, Lord, help me by your Spirit to obey all the way right away with a happy heart, to worship you, not with my lips only, but with my heart as well, uh, to gladly, to delight to do your will, to, to like Jesus said in the garden, say, not my will, but yours be done. Let me pray over these things and we'll be done. Pray with me. Lord, it is a blessing to be studying your word again in this context. We do pray that you'd bless these Bible talks and use them to grow our faith. Father, we uh, do pray for faith to believe that even when you let life get incredibly painful, uh, that we would nonetheless believe in your love and in your goodness. 
Now, Lord, thank you that you do use painful situations. You use miserable situations to teach us to hate sin and to love you. But again, give us grace to walk by faith through that. God, we give you glory today for the way that you are incredibly stronger than the powers of darkness. Uh, the powers of darkness, yes, they have supernatural power, but in comparison to you, they're nothing. Uh, you have all power, all dominion, all authority, world without end. Thank you for that. And again, help us to believe that. And then, O oh Lord, by your Spirit, teach us to obey all the way, right away with a happy heart, uh, not half-hearted obedience, not uh, sort of hesitant obedience. Please, O oh Lord, teach us to delight to do your will like Jesus our Savior did. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in. Have a great week.